Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment of the go- for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, <clears throat> but by your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand, I will repay it. To say nothing of you owing me even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. God, as we we embark to to read a very personal request and a very personal letter, um, it might not be easy for us to see how it applies to us, and how it should influence the way we live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would give clarity to my words and and give us clarity of our minds that we might take your word that we know that is effective and powerful for every good purpose and we might be transformed by it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we as Christians wrestle with a world that isn't designed the way God intended it to be? Or it's designed the way God intended it to be, but it hasn't looked like that for a while. What is a Christian vision for, for living in a world that is scarred by suffering and evil? And that, that's not a academic question only. It's a question that demands an answer. It's one that you will, in fact, answer. By ignoring the question, you are, in effect, answering it. You are a citizen of this planet, of this nation, maybe, this county, this city, and you will either live at peace with its dictates, or you will rebel against them. It is, in a way, a binary choice. To to take a simplistic example, you can't both obey the speed limit and obliterate it. You just can't. Mark, could you do me a favor and close the front door? Thanks. Other Mark, please close it. I get distracted by the cars going down the street. Um, We believe that God created the world perfect. And in that state, human beings and God communed with one another. There was peace. There was plenty, there was apparently no lack, no suffering. 
And we believe that Jesus Christ is going to renew that creation at the end of the age and restore all that was lost. But in between, we suffer. Violence and bloodshed are evidenced in our rampant discord and our lack of peace. Famine and starvation evidence the lack that is so prevalent across our world. Illness and injury remind us of pain. In our own nation and city, we have real struggles. Rampant segregation, even on Sunday mornings, reminds us that we are not yet in any full sense a kingdom of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. When 130 homicides occur just within the bounds of Cleveland, to say nothing of the suburbs and northeast Ohio, we are reminded that we have yet to beat our swords into plowshares. Now, throughout history, there have been Christians who have argued that we should bring heaven to earth now and, and radically reshape society to a divine mandate. Often these groups are separatists, creating their own cultures as separate from the rest of culture as possible. Uh, you might think of the Shakers or the Amish. Um, and yet some are not separatists. Uh, there is certainly a push in the broader in parts of the broader Pentecostal charismatic movement that I think our goal is to entirely reshape culture in our image of our version of Christianity. There have also been in, in Christians in the past who have been willing to rework culture in their image of Christianity. Uh, you can see it in the temperance movement, especially in this country. When we successfully, have you ever stop and think about this? We successfully got a constitutional amendment passed to prohibit all alcohol. When most of the citizens didn't even agree with that. that to me, when I think about that historically, is incredible. Christians influenced by 19th and 20th century modernism often develop what we might think of as a progressive or politically liberal agenda. Uh, with which to rework America's institutions. And the early to mid, uh, the early to mid 20th century, other Christians engaged in an effort to define America as a peculiar, peculiarly, I always, it's a hard word to say, peculiarly Christian nation. So that in God our trust, God we trust was added to our coins and under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance. So there's a long history of how do we interact between the culture that we see is very much at odds with God's design and what we feel as Christians should be God's design and how do we reconcile those two things. The Bible never gives us a blueprint for exactly how to interact with every cultural moment the church would face. But it does give us, by word and by example, a vision for what the church ought to look like in this in-between time. A vision for what it means to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we reveal to the world a very different way of living while not separating ourselves so much that the world can't see it? In Paul's letter to the Philemon, or to Philemon, we get a glimpse of what that looks like. The surface issue is slavery. The deeper issue, however, is what is a gospel people supposed to look like. 
And here's how we're going to break this down. I, I struggled with this a bit this week. We're going we're gonna to look through this passage sort of verse by verse. And to unpack exactly what Paul is saying both directly and, and indirectly to his friend Philemon. And then we're going to back up and we're going to look at the big picture. And we're going to see three broad implications for how, sh how we should live as a gospel people. So, a little bit of a verse-by-verse -verse analysis of the passage, and then three broad implications for us as a gospel people. So let's dig in there. We'll start with verses 8 through 16, the first paragraph in our text. It's actually one long, long sentence. Verses 8 and 9. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, we'll pause there, that accordingly, there in the text, it points us back to what we talked about last week. Paul is encouraged to pray for Philemon because of Philemon's tremendous Christian character, particularly his notoriety for refreshing the hearts of the saints. In light of that, accordingly, Paul has a request. Now, Paul says he's bold enough to command to do what is required. That might be a little strong. The word bold was used of the right to speak freely in ancient Greek democratic society, sort of an ancient version of the First Amendment. Uh, but Paul isn't speaking about his rights as a citizen. He's speaking about the freedom he has in Christ to command Philemon to do what is required or, or proper, considering all the present circumstances. But he says he doesn't want to do that. Rather, he would prefer to appeal to love. And Paul is not referring to a generic, warm sentimentality here. Uh, in verse 7, Paul had talked about Philemon's love with respect to him, taking care of all of the saints, refreshing all of their hearts. Christian love isn't just feelings. It's not less than that. Feelings is a part of it. But it is the sacrificial actions that are taken on the basis of those feelings. And so for the sake of Philemon's demonstrated commitment to loving his fellow Christians, Paul makes an appeal. And he throws in for good measure that he's an old man and he's a prisoner. A prisoner for the sake of preaching the good news about Jesus. Things that Philemon certainly knew, but they're going to be relevant to the request he's going to make. So this is a lot of buildup, and Paul knows what he's asking is a big request. We've been saying that for two weeks, and, he, and he's prepping Philemon for it, and he starts to get into it in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So the request has to do with this slave, Onesimus, and this might be... As good a point, I've punted for a couple weeks, probably a good a place as any to talk about the elephant in the passage, which is slavery. The first thing we need to do, though, is we need to erase American slavery from our minds for a moment. For a moment. It's not that it's irrelevant. It's just that for most Americans, our understanding of slavery is colored by a particularly wicked institution that often treated human beings, mostly of African ancestry, as little different than animals. It was originally established by the kidnapping of innocent men and women from another continent. 
and it maintained its status through brutality and power. But Roman slavery in the first century was different. Not in every respect, but in important respects. Roman slavery could likewise be brutal and incredibly wicked, but there was a lot more variation. Some slaves were born slaves. Some were prisoners of war. Others sold themselves of their own volition into slavery. Sometimes they'd do that to repay a debt. Sometimes they did this, believe it or not, and this is, this is mind-blowing if you can only think through the American lens. They sold themselves into slavery for social advancement. There were jobs in the Roman Empire that were only allowed to be held by slaves. Many slaves could work outside the relationship with the master and earn a separate income. Many slaves could purchase their freedom. In some cases, a doulos, that's the Greek word for slave, in some cases, a doulos might be closer to our modern idea of an employee than what we think of as happening in 1825 in Texas. I'm sorry, guys. Uh, I'll choose a state. Is there anyone here from Alabama? We'll say, in 1825 in Alabama. Um, it's different. What's more, slaves could be freed in different ways. In, in the American concept, you know, you were either a slave or you weren't a slave. But the Romans recognized sort of different levels, different types of freedom that could be legally granted. For instance, a master could legally grant a slave the right to travel freely, to, to leave the property and go wherever he or she wanted to go. But it didn't free them necessarily in other respects, like they were still bound to that master for work. It's just when they didn't have work, they could do whatever they wanted. So uh, there were different gradations of freedom in the Roman system. And so I don't want us to read, it's always dangerous to read the Bible through our own cultural lens. We do need to be informed by what the culture was that they were writing in. And then, once we understand it there, apply it forward to our current context. So we, we need to get that order right. Um, <clears throat> but some of this, I do, want, I do want you to know, because there are critics out there that will say really ignorant things. Um, like the Bible supports slavery. And, that, and that's just really not right. Um, but significantly, for our purposes, the purposes this morning, it's not right because ancient slavery was not the same thing as the wholesale disaster practiced by Americans. And I could say a lot more on that, but this is not a sermon on slavery or what the Bible says about slavery per se. But we will have a few things to say on it. But we do need to ask, what kind of slave was Onesimus? If there's a lot of variation in Roman slavery, what can we say about Onesimus? What kind of situation is he in? I'm going to go out on a limb just a little bit, so take it with a grain of salt, but I think that Onesimus was likely born a slave. And here's why. His name. His name is Onesimus, which was a very common name in the first century Roman Empire for a slave. Because his name means useful. My guess is that that's not something a mother in her love is likely going to choose to call 
her son, especially if it's already sort of known as a slave name. I think the reason you get named Onesimus is because you're born into slavery. We don't know that 100% for sure, but that seems very likely. And that matters because a lot of translations, including this one, uh, if you look down at verse 16, for instance, it calls Onesimus a bondservant. And usually we think of a bondservant as a type of doulos, Greek word for slave, it's a type of doulos who had sold himself into slavery so that maybe to repay a debt or, or you know, otherwise acquire some money. And so there was a, a voluntary transactional thing. But I don't think that's likely here. I think that's a jump to conclusion. I think it would be better if the translations would just use the more generic term slaves here and not try to read into it what kind of slave he was. It also tends to soften it a little bit, and I don't know that we should soften it. Slavery was still, in general, a bad thing in Rome. Paul uses a play on words in verse 11 to suggest that Onesimus had been useless to Philemon, but now he is useful to both of them. So Mr. Mr. Useful over here had been for a while useless to Philemon. Um, we don't know why that is. Apparently Onesimus had not been a very good slave. He didn't live up to his name. Interestingly, though, we know from history and from archaeology that slaves from this region of the Roman Empire, Phrygia, had a particularly bad reputation for being useless. It was sort of a cultural currency that Phrygian slaves were worthless. And Onesimus was a Phrygian slave. So he didn't live up to his name, but he did live up to his cultural stereotype. Why was Onesimus useless? We don't know. We can only guess. But somehow he escaped from Philemon. And somehow he found Paul. Uh, lots of ink has been spilled on the, the circumstances about how that might have come to be. Uh, at a big, really, they're just conjectures. We, we can't say. On a broader level, um, Onesimus and Philemon are evidence of something Paul wrote at another earlier time. Something we sang about this morning, in a way. All things work together for the good of those who love him. God had mysteriously worked out Philemon's case to bring him to salvation. And this is without a doubt what Paul means when he says in verse 10 that he became Onesimus' father in prison. Without getting into the reasons he fled and how he found Paul, Paul has now become something of a mediator, pleading for Onesimus to his old friend Philemon. But what's the plea? What's the request? Well, he holds back a little bit longer. He holds back just a little bit more because he wants to remind Philemon or tell Philemon some new things about Onesimus. So verses 12 through 14 says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion but by your own accord. Now this is interesting because Paul is sending him back but calls him his own heart. That is this, this powerful term that we, that we looked at um, in, in last week's passage. Uh, spelunkna, it's his 
bowels, it's his intestines, it's his guts. It's his, Paul's saying, this guy is the depths of me. That's how much I love him. That's how much I care for this man. But even so, I'm sending him back to you. The, ver- the language in verse 13 is probably a little stronger than what we have here. It, it seems like Paul was even thinking about keeping Philemon with him. That's how valuable Onesimus had become to Paul. Not as a slave here, although we can't know it for sure, but we can imagine a thousand ways a devoted friend would have been useful to an imprisoned apostle of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul suggests that Onesimus could serve on Philemon's behalf. It seems like what Paul is saying here is, Philemon, I know your heart. I know your character. I know you'd do more for me if you could. But what you might not realize is that your slave, Onesimus, is actually very helpful to the advancement of the gospel. And I suspect that if you knew that, Philemon, you'd go along with him being right here with me. But I don't want to force you. That wouldn't be right either. So he continues. He says, so for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, so gingerly, Paul begins to drive the point home. God took Onesimus away for a short time. We don't know how long it was. But, but Paul makes it sound like a very short time, and that's because the other extreme is that Philemon is now going to have Onesimus forever as a brother in Christ. So whether Onesimus was gone for a month or whether he was gone for three years, it was a short time in the light of eternity. And what better way to have him than than not as a slave but as a beloved brother. Here we have Paul using two terms of affection. In the opening greeting of this letter, Paul had called Philemon his beloved. That's what he called his friend Philemon. And in the opening of the prayer, Paul had called, uh, uh, Paul, Paul also talks about Philemon as his brother, and he uses it again in this passage, uh, a term of their affection for one another in the Christian faith. And Paul uses both of those terms to stir the heart and stir the affections of Philemon for his once useless slave. So now Paul has suitably spoken of Philemon's character. He has let Philemon know that he prays for his partnership to be activated by some news. And he has now shared that news. Onesimus, his runaway slave, has become a Christian. And now Paul is prepared to make the request in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you. And the Lord refresh my heart in Christ. As if he says, you are my partner, Philemon. Are we not in fellowship for the gospel of Jesus? then you must receive Onesimus as if he were me. Now, it's possible that Philemon would be well within his rights to beat Onesimus or otherwise punish him. 
he could certainly choose to be harsh with Onesimus. But is that how Philemon would treat Paul if Paul came for a visit? No, I imagine he would throw out the best for his old dear friend. And quite broadly and quite, and quite boldly, Paul asks Philemon to do the same thing for Onesimus. Paul suggests that if Onesimus had wronged him in any way or owes him anything, and, and we might say, well, well, what does he owe or what has he wronged? Well, we don't know, but certainly being deprived of the service of a legitimate due loss would be a loss for Philemon. He lost, at the very least, the labor that he would have had if Onesimus had been present. But if he was a fugitive slave, if he was a runaway slave, it's quite likely it would have been common in that period that Onesimus would have stolen something of value from his master on his escape. How else is he going to make his way in the world? That was a very common problem. We can't know for certain what he owed, but Paul, the impoverished minister of the gospel, makes a bold statement. Whatever he owes, charge it to me. And then apparently Paul signs the letter right there. That was common for Paul to sign the end of his letters as a mark of authenticity. But here he signs kind of in the middle of the letter. And he says, I will repay it. Make no mistake, Philemon. If there's a charge, I'm going to cover it. Don't know how I'm going to cover it. I'm in prison. I'm poor. But I will cover the charge. And then he sort of slips in. But keep in mind, you owe me your very life. And it would seem to be that Paul directly or indirectly was responsible for Philemon's conversion to Christ. And Paul is reminding Philemon, whatever I owe you, and I owe you whatever Philemon owes you, whatever I owe you, you owe me a whole lot more. And then the coup de grace. Paul says in verse 20, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Even more so than before, the word benefit is a very, very close play on Onesimus' name, coming from the very same root. It's, just, it's, a, it's as if he is saying, brother, come on. Give me Onesimus. Let him return to me. And refresh my heart Remember back in verse 7 when Paul lauded Philemon for the way he refreshed the hearts of the saints? Well, Paul is saying, I'm a saint, and my heart needs being refreshed. You can do this, Philemon. You can make it happen. Now, Paul has made no command here. And I think he's been rather gentle all around. But what is it that Paul thinks is proper or right for Philemon to do? What? What would it mean to welcome Onesimus as if he were Paul? What would it mean to remove any obligation or debt that Onesimus had? Paul writes, confident of your own obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. So Paul knows that Philemon will go even above and beyond his request. And at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. For I'm hoping that through your prayers I'll be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ, Jesus, and greetings to you as so does Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, and my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So 
So there's that little final touch. And, and by the way, finally, I, mean, I know you'll go above and beyond and do everything I've asked for you, but um, I'm planning to stop by and see you later and just to see how you are. I, I imagine it's going to be, it's hard to imagine, let's put it this way, that the implication of Paul's request is anything less than an entirely altered relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. And it probably means the end of the master-slave relationship for all practical purposes. I say for all practical purposes because there are some socioeconomic realities of first century Rome that might make it difficult or even impossible for Onesimus to live as an entirely free man. In other words, making him entirely free could actually be something cruel to do to him depending on his situation. He might not have any way to make a living or survive. Um, there's just some complexities that we don't know about Onesimus' exact situation. But while legally he might have remained a doulos, a slave, it's hard to imagine him being a doulos in any traditional sense once he was welcomed as a fellow laborer, fellow partner, fellow soldier, beloved brother. Onesimus' identity had changed. And with a change in identity comes a change in relationship. In the American slave institution, there was a very complex history with regard to religion. At times, religion was promoted because it was believed it made slaves more docile. At other times, religion was frowned upon. And, and one of the most scandalous reasons that some slave owners refused to let their slaves know the gospel of Jesus Christ was an understanding that if the slave was a Christian, then he or she was a brother or sister in Christ, and that changes the relationship, and they'd rather not deal with a slave who was suddenly an equal. And so they didn't even tell them about Jesus. And you know what? On a level, they were right. They knew their Bibles well. But they didn't know Jesus well. They were Pharisees. Trying to manipulate the letter of the law in order to gain maximum personal benefit. Seeking their own glory than the glory of God. And that is a terrible hypocrisy. A damnable hypocrisy. But not so Paul and Philemon. Because Paul rejoiced in the conversion of Onesimus. And expected that Philemon would do the same. And when we take this together. Paul's plea I think gives us three implications for how we are to live as a gospel people. The first implication needs to be heard in the light of the second one. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. The first implication for gospel people is that we are not called to restore heaven on earth 
today. Now, on one hand, that might seem obvious. On the other hand, I think it's a bit more subtle. Even after admitting that ancient Roman slavery was very, very different and often much better than what existed in America, we really can't say it was a perfect thing. At best, maybe being a doulos could have been a necessary evil. Or perhaps maybe we'd go so far to say a good thing for an imperfect world at times. That is really pushing the boundaries of it. But in the ancient world, there was no or very little credit. There was no bankruptcy protection. So you could sell yourself into slavery and manage to eat, be clothed, have a job, perhaps an opportunity to better yourself. I don't want to give the impression that it was the normal life for a slave, but it was a possibility that existed, and I think we can see that that might be better than the alternative, better than starving to death. But generally, at least, Roman slavery was not enjoyable for most slaves. And, and what's more, we got to get this. Slavery only existed and only exists today because the world is cursed by sin. If there was no sin, there would be no slavery. Because sin runs rampant, and because we are separated from God, our work is sometimes fruitless. Sometimes our efforts don't reap a crop, don't yield a harvest. And so we don't have enough. And because of our sinfulness, our resources are not divided by need. And so some go with plenty and some end with a lack. Sometimes when we see evils in this world, we feel called to stop them. And, there, and there's a time and a place for that, for sure. But we also need to recognize that overturning evil means eliminating sin, which is something that is outside our power. There is one who has the power to eliminate sin. His name is Jesus Christ. <clears throat> but even those who have been forgiven ransomed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ are still plagued with sin in our own hearts that we are called to actively fight against and slay with the sword of the Spirit. It's ambitious at best and foolish, perhaps at the extreme, to think that even redeemed sinners can eliminate the sin of the world. And so Paul does not call for the abolishment of the slavery system here. Paul did not appeal, when he made his appeal to Philemon, he did not appeal to the moral evil of institutional Roman slavery to persuade Philemon. Paul was living in light of eternity. He recognized that there was a Jesus who came and died to pay for sinners like him, like Onesimus, like Philemon, so that they could be restored to God in peace. 
that this Jesus would return to judge the world and set it right. And that people needed to hear the good news so that they might repent and believe and so to be rescued from God's coming judgment. Jesus would remove sin and evil at his return. Paul was a herald. He was a messenger. He was not, and we are not, called to be revolutionaries. Now, there's some complications in saying that. Because we live in a government of the people, by the people, for the people, rather than a government of Caesar, by Caesar, and for Rome. Or the king, or the queen, or the supreme leader. And so I do think it is different for those of us who are in democratic systems. We own a share of governance and rule. And we talked about that um, well, almost two years ago. Uh, we did a series on how Christians should relate to government. Since we are both ruled by Caesar and yet with our vote, each of us are Caesar. Paul didn't live under that, though. He lived under the absolute rule of the Roman Empire. But saying all that, Paul's not calling for revolution, but nonetheless, second invocation for gospel people. The church is to be evidence of the better world to come. I think it's Tim Keller who has compared the church to a model home. It's a great analogy. Sometimes if you're looking for a home in a new subdivision, especially a newly developed subdivision, there might not be any homes built yet, but they have a model home, a spec home. Sometimes an apartment unit uh, will have one apartment that's set off as uh, an office, but also a demo so you can see what the regular apartments look like. And you can, you can't live in it. It's not the final thing. But you can walk around in it. You can get a view of it. And you can anticipate what it would look like to be a part of that neighborhood. And in the same way, the church is to be an approximation of what a recreated earth will be like. Of what heaven will be like when sin is done away with and justice prevails. And so while we might not be called to drop everything and fight every ill of culture, nevertheless, we should be evidencing the reversal of those ills within the church. Slavery, whether in America or ancient Rome, was a byproduct of seeing different people as having different worths, different values. Sometimes, like in the American system, we made that determination based on skin color. Sometimes, maybe in Rome, that distinction was made on one's bank account. But Christianity says that all people are of equal value precisely because they're created in God's image. And Christians know this quite strongly because we fully admit that we are sinners and equally deserving of an eternal punishment in hell. And we know that undeservingly we were rescued by a good savior. And so now our worth is only in Jesus. 
And that's a level playing field. And so Paul can write in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Society's distinctions are to be thrown aside at the cross. Our society says that some careers are are better than others, that being a, a professional and a you know, white-collar, uh, six-figure salary is, is better than making five figures in a blue-collar world. Never mind if you enjoy it and you're happy. Our culture says that certain degree programs are, are more significant. So, you know, students, um, you know, in one program uh, versus another, um, we had a... We had a joke uh, when I started in the engineering program at the University of Illinois. The engineering program was at Illinois was a very prestigious program. And uh, we, we had a math joke uh, that the, the limit, those of you who are not math people are going to lose this, but I'll, I'll tell it anyways, I shouldn't. But the limit as GPA goes to zero uh, of the equation ENG for engineering uh, equaled LAS, where it's the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. So <laughs> as your GPA plummeted in the engineering program, you eventually converted to a liberal arts degree. Um, but there was a class distinction, right, that certain degree programs were more valuable and prestigious than others. I fell victim to that. I decided I hated engineering, and I transferred to another school where I did liberal arts and sciences. But... Um, but God, God was calling me to ministry, so I studied Bible and philosophy. Um, even when it's, we, we, we uh, make class distinctions between our sins even. So that a conniving white-collar schemer is more valuable in our society than a struggling drug addict. These are value judgments in our society. And in the church, these sorts of worldly divisions should be destroyed. I don't know if Onesimus was ever legally freed in every sense of that word. But what I do know is that Philemon and Onesimus had an obligation to treat each other very differently than any Roman master and slave had ever, ever treated each other before. Philemon was called to love Onesimus like a brother, and Onesimus was called to exhort and rebuke Philemon as necessary out of the gospel love. That's what brothers do for each other. And I can guarantee you there were very few slaves in the Roman system or the American system that were empowered to rebuke their owners. But that's what the gospel would call for. To be a gospel people means that we need to fight sin in our own ranks so that the values of this community are radically different than the values of the world. And in that way, the dying world will see it. And they will see something distinct and different and maybe, just maybe, they'll want to take up residence in this neighborhood. 
third implication is that it's often better in Christ to persuade than to demand. And I, I say this one particularly for, for leaders and, and would-be leaders like Paul and Philemon, but it goes for all. Look, we have to acknowledge that if anyone had a right to demand something from Philemon, it was Paul the apostle who carried the very authority of Jesus Christ. But yet even he didn't make a demand, but he appeals to Philemon's Christian love. And we who are Christians have the right to make demands. We do. And our right isn't as strong as Paul's, but, but it is strong if we are resting on Scripture, if we are speaking God's word after him. Then the demand isn't really our own, but it is the Lord's. And, and we are well within our rights to insist on certain things from each other. And it doesn't necessarily make a person a bad person if they decide that something needs to be insisted upon. But, and this is a big but, Consider all the authority that Paul had, more than any of us, and consider how gently and patiently he makes his case to Philemon. It's often better to persuade than demand. Now, some of us, just kind of caution, are from time to time, or most of the time, or all of the time, too weak in our convictions about Jesus so that we would never run the risk of demanding anything on the basis of God's word. And that's not what we're talking about here either. We're talking about a disciplined tempering of our right to make a demand in favor of persuading. So you can't, you can't, you can't get to Paul's style of persuading here unless you acknowledge your confidence in Christ under God's word to be able to make a demand when appropriate, but you temper that for the good of the other person. And in any event, you still have to do some persuading. You can't always keep your mouth quiet. So a, a gospel people is a persuading people. How are we doing as a persuading people? Those of us who are members here at, at Gateway Downtown will be likely voting on a new members covenant this afternoon. We're hoping to establish more clear commitments that we make to one another. And one of those commitments goes something like this. We're actually going to discuss the language. But we will devote ourselves to loving one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other, and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. Out of love, we will exercise affectionate care and will admonish and entreat one another. It's all scriptural. That's all biblical. Uh, brothers and sisters, that's not demanding. That's persuading it might become demanding if necessary but that's persuading we are called to lovingly intervene in each other's lives in order to persuade one another to greater holiness and to the fighting of sin so that we can be 
that kind of renewed people that speaks untold volumes to a dying world. And so being a gospel people is about being a persuading people among our ranks. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the times when in our arrogance we have attempted to be greater revolutionaries than our Lord Jesus. Forgive us for the times especially when we have attempted to be revolutionaries of our culture and yet we have not dealt with the sin that remains in our own hearts and our own churches. Forgive us for the times, God, in which we have seen a brother or a sister going astray and we've bit our lip and held our tongue because our fear of man was greater than our fear of God. And we didn't lovingly persuade to repentance and holiness. But God, make us a people who persuades. Make us a people who cares so deeply with so much affection from our splunk, from our guts for one another and that it pains us. And so we gently and lovingly and carefully persuade our family church to plumb the greater depths of holiness in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and God may we be a people who then is so transformed by holiness so marked by repentance that outsiders who don't know you see something different and demand to know what it is And that we would boldly tell them that it's not us. But it is the power of Christ's cross alive in us. And give us wisdom. That as we live in a world where we are privileged to be little Caesars with a small seed. That we are little rulers and little kings and queens with our votes and we and in a ballot box, and we do rule, and yet only in part. Give us wisdom to be responsible, that we might do our little governing with justice and mercy and truth. In the name of the Savior who makes us pure and calls us to be holy, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and continue worshiping some more in song.